Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. Hey guys, welcome to Moderate Party, a political podcast for moderate centrists and independents. I'm your host, Hillary Lombard, and today we're going to be talking about the only thing that anybody is talking about, Afghanistan. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different than normal. I'm going to spend the first half of the episode breaking down the current situation in Afghanistan and what led us there. And the second half of the episode is going to be spent answering listener questions. You guys had a lot of great questions on this topic, so I'm going to be just knocking out a couple of them. I'm not an expert on Afghanistan, and I don't pretend to be. All I can give you are the facts as I understand them and the opinions that those facts inform. However, I am making a special effort on this episode to include even more links than usual to reporting, studies, essays, primary sources, and, I mean, anything else that helped inform this episode. Those links will be posted on moderatepartypodcast.com episodes. Just click on the link for this episode and you can check them all out. I highly encourage you to read through them and come to your own conclusions about the situation. All right, let's get started. Afghanistan shot to the top of the news cycle last week after the Taliban roared through the country, ultimately seizing the capital and contributing to former Afghan president Ashraf Ghani, abandoning his people and fleeing the country which effectively surrendered Afghanistan to the Taliban. All of this happened in 10 days. 10 days. That's all that it took to undo 20 years of U.S. military investment. Ain't that a kick in the teeth? To make matters worse, yesterday, a terrorist attack at the Kabul airport killed 13 U.S. servicemen. It's a lot to unpack, and it's hard to keep up with the news cycle. It's hard to keep things straight. Um, So I just thought that today's episode could be dedicated to sorting it out. Uh, In order to understand the situation that we're in now, I think it's really important to understand how we got here. So let's do a quick, dirty, and digestible recap of recent history. Ready? The Afghanistan saga begins on one of the worst days in American history, a day I, like many of you, will never forget. September 11th. Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The victims were in airplanes or in their offices, secretaries, businessmen and women, military and federal workers, moms and dads, friends and neighbors. Thousands of lives were suddenly ended by evil, despicable acts of terror. Today, our nation saw evil, the very worst of human nature. And we responded with the best of America, with the daring of our rescue workers, with the caring for strangers and neighbors who came to give blood and help in any way they could. Immediately following the first attack, the search is underway for those who are behind these evil acts. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbored them. Within a matter of weeks, we knew our enemy's name, Al-Qaeda. And we knew that the Taliban 
were the ones that had harbored them. After that, President Bush introduced the American people to a new type of war. We condemn the Taliban regime. It is not only repressing its own people, it is threatening people everywhere by sponsoring and sheltering and supplying terrorists, by aiding and abetting murder. The Taliban regime is committing murder. Taliban must act and act immediately. They will hand over the terrorists where they will share in their fate. Now, this war will not be like the war against Iraq a decade ago with the decisive liberation of territory and a swift conclusion. It will not look like the air war above Kosovo two years ago where no ground troops were used and not a single American was lost in combat. Our response involves far more than instant retaliation and isolated strikes. Americans should not expect one battle, but a lengthy campaign, unlike any other we have ever seen. We will starve terrorists of funding, turn them one against another, drive them from place to place until there is no refuge or no rest. And we will pursue nations that provide aid or safe haven to terrorism. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Our initial efforts in Afghanistan were incredibly successful, and within a couple of months, we had established a new government and the Taliban were retreating. At that point, we were confident enough to say, Thanks to our military and our allies and the brave fighters of Afghanistan, the Taliban regime is coming to an end. That was 19 years ago, and we're still there. So what the hell happened? In 2003, our military attention had been completely diverted to Iraq. We declare an end to major combat operations in Afghanistan and we begin an era of nation building. What follows is a honeymoon period for democracy in Afghanistan. They get a new president, a new constitution, and a lot of U.S. money. But unfortunately, by 2006, the honeymoon is over. The Taliban's resurfacing, we're seeing more and more collateral killings, and our allies are losing energy for the war on terror. So unfortunately, five years after we announced an end to major combat missions, President Obama takes office and recommits to the war effort, doubling down on nation building. There's a lot of buzz for the shift in U.S. strategy. The U.S. feels shiny and new. The Obama administration has a new strategy for ending the war. They switch up military leadership, they stabilize Pakistan and, and Afghanistan, and they bring the total troop presence to 100,000 people. After years of surging and 10 years after 9-11, Obama finally delivers the news that our nation has been waiting for. Good evening. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden the leader of al-Qaeda, and a terrorist who's responsible for the murder of thousands of innocent men, women, and children. For over two decades, bin Laden has been al-Qaeda's leader and symbol, and has continued to plot attacks against our country and our friends and allies. The death of bin Laden marks the most significant achievement to date in our nation's effort to defeat al-Qaeda. Yet his death does not mark the end of our effort. There's no doubt that al-Qaeda will continue to pursue attacks against us. We must and we will remain vigilant at home and abroad. As we do, we must also reaffirm that the United States is not and never will be at war with Islam and started with the senseless slaughter of our citizens. And on nights like this one, 
we can say to those families who have lost loved ones to al-Qaeda's terror, justice has been done. In 2016, Trump takes office and reverses course on Afghanistan. The American people are weary of war without victory. Nowhere is this more evident than with the war in Afghanistan. No one denies that we have inherited a challenging and troubling situation in Afghanistan and South Asia, but we do not have the luxury of going back in time and making different or better decisions. We will not talk about numbers of troops or our plans for further military activities. America's enemies must never know our plans or believe they can wait us out. I will not say when we are going to attack, but attack we will. Our troops will fight to win. We will fight to win. From now on, victory will have a clear definition. Attacking our enemies, obliterating ISIS, crushing Al-Qaeda, preventing the Taliban from taking over Afghanistan, and stopping mass terror attacks against America before they emerge. That's a casual list, right? Like, that shouldn't be hard. We just actually needed a coach to come in with some tough love and tell us how to win. I'm obviously kidding. And in fairness to Trump, if you listen to that speech in full, I've linked in the episode notes, it's actually not a bad speech. He says a lot of good things. He talks about how we can begin to hate Muslim people within our own country just because of what's going on in Afghanistan. He talks about how this is not going to be a quick process. He talks about how we can go back in time and make better decisions. I mean, he says a lot of good stuff. The problem is that when it comes to Afghanistan, pretty words are not enough, especially not if we've heard them all before. We will not dictate to the Afghan people how to live. We are not in Afghanistan to control that country or to dictate its future. We must stop the resurgence of safe havens. We must deny Al-Qaeda a safe haven. Afghans will secure and build their own nation. Afghans will have to take responsibility for their security. Our support is not a blank check. The days of providing a blank check are over. So Trump mixes up our approach, right? And we drop the most powerful non-nuclear bomb that we have on ISIS militants in Afghanistan. We literally call this thing the mother of all bombs. After that, Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, experiences suicide bombings on a scale never seen before. And the Taliban surge. Soon they control or contest more than a third of the country. They carry out a bold series of attacks in Kabul that kill more than 115 people amid a broader upsurge in violence. And the attacks come as the Trump administration is implementing that plan and deploying troops to rural Afghanistan. They're advising Afghan brigades and launching airstrikes against opium labs, all trying to decimate the Taliban's military resources and their finances. But it's not working. We are now 16 years into a war and things are escalating all over again, which brings us to 2020. In February of 2020, the U.S. makes a terrible mistake. The Trump administration signs a peace deal with the Taliban, and it, it is a doozy. As far as bad deals go, this is as bad as Blockbuster choosing not to buy Netflix when they had the chance. Here's how it breaks down. The Taliban says that they will release 1,000 prisoners, and they said that they would not protect al-Qaeda. Awesome. 
and that they agree to participate in peace talks with the Afghan government. Okay, not bad. Well, it is bad if you consider that the U.S. in return is going to give up a lot more. The deal laid out an explicit timetable for the United States and NATO to pull their forces, exactly what Trump said he would not do. In addition to withdrawing our troops and the troops of our allies, we also say that we're going to release 5,000 Taliban prisoners. Which came as a real shock to the Afghan government, the people that were holding those prisoners, and the people that had not been included in these peace talks. But anyway, the terms of this deal are terrible. The U.S. agreed to give something for nothing. But it gets worse. Intelligence indicated time and time again that the Taliban were not holding up their end of the bargain. They backed out of peace talks with the Afghan government, which was the condition of the agreement. The Taliban pulling out of peace talks was a shock to no one because President Trump took away their need to negotiate. Trump's former defense secretary, Mark Esper, accused Trump of undermining the agreement by repeatedly urging the U.S. troops to leave, even though the Taliban wasn't meeting the terms of the negotiated agreement. In fact, Trump actively sabotaged the peace talks by repeatedly tweeting his intention to withdraw all troops by May 1st. If you're the Taliban and you know that the U.S. is going to withdraw, no matter what you do, why would you negotiate? Why would you be on your best behavior if you're already getting what you want? But we ignored that. We ignored that they weren't holding up their end of the bargain, and we kept releasing their fighters. We kept releasing their fighters and sending our soldiers home. And this is an important point, because we knew. We knew that they weren't holding up their end of the bargain, and we kept withdrawing anyway. Why would we do that? Well, because it wasn't a peace agreement. It was a surrender. We were surrendering Afghanistan to the Taliban. Here's a quote from Trump's former national security advisor, H.R. McMaster. Our secretary of state, Mike Pompeo at the time, has signed a surrender agreement with the Taliban. This collapse goes back to the capitulation agreement of 2020. The Taliban didn't defeat us. We defeated ourselves. End quote. That's the ugly truth of this deal. It never mattered if they held up their end of the agreement because we weren't negotiating peace. We were surrendering. We were leaving no matter what. But America doesn't surrender. That's the dark side of American exceptionalism. We don't surrender. We don't lose. It would be political suicide to say that that's what we were doing, even though it was the truth. So instead, we sign a lopsided deal with no intention of following through and try to spin it as a victory for diplomacy instead of a military surrender. I want to take a quick sidebar here because this is something that has left a really bad taste in my mouth as we look at how the Biden administration is handling things in Afghanistan currently. The media is so obsessed with framing this around America's defeat or our humiliation. Like the most important thing about this situation is whether we won or lost. I just can't understand how you could, how that could be what you want to write about or what you want to talk about, or how you could see that, our victory or our defeat, our humiliation or our pride as the most important thing in this situation. And I mean, it's everywhere. Like, if you think about that clip I just shared with you of Trump, he's talking about victory. He's saying that, we, that the American people are weary of war without victory. Not weary of war, but we're tired of not winning. That's disgusting. 
<sighs> and I mean, now with everything happening in Afghanistan, you see it all over the news, all over Twitter, podcasts, and even in conversations. And I'm hearing this from a lot of people that I respect, people I trust, people I listen to, smart people, kind people, people I like. If you're watching scared people literally try to hold on to the wheel of an airplane because they want to get out of this country so badly, if you're reading about women unsure about whether or not they can be seen in public, if you're watching that and your biggest takeaway is that is the humiliation of the United States of America, then you're missing it. Man, you are really, you're really missing it. And I hate that. Okay, I'm sorry. That was, that was a little rant, but I needed to get it off of my chest. So back to our history lesson. Okay, so Trump signs the worst deal since Blockbuster and Netflix. And I think an important piece of context for that agreement is that it happened in the midst of, a, of Trump's downward spiral on coronavirus. Think about it. He's up for re-election. He needs an accomplishment to be able to talk about. And being the first president to bring our troops home from Afghanistan, to bring peace in the Middle East, that's the accomplishment. It doesn't matter if it's true or not. And if you think I'm being too harsh, consider this. When everything started going south with Afghanistan just recently, the GOP actually removed the page on their website that praised Trump's agreement. Do you think that they would do that if the deal was good? So when President Biden takes office, he doesn't really have a lot of good options. At this point, we have less than 2,500 troops in Afghanistan, and the Taliban is more powerful than they've been in decades. Frankly, we're outnumbered. Trump's peace agreement released twice as many Taliban fighters as U.S. soldiers in the country, not to mention how many fighters they recruited over the last few years. And now President Biden is staring down the barrel of a hard choice. He has to choose to send more troops and escalate the war with the Taliban, committing us to potentially another decade of war or move forward with our withdrawal. He chose withdrawal, which brings us to this month. U.S. troops began to withdraw. The Taliban started surging. They were stomping across Afghanistan at unprecedented speed, leaving fallen cities in their wake. They took their first provincial capital on August 6th, and by the 15th, they were at the gates of the capital. This is one of those blistering facts about our withdrawal is that everything we had tried to build for 20 years just collapsed. 20 years of intervention, support, funding, military training, it didn't make a difference. It only took 10 days for Afghanistan to fall. Which raises the obvious question, how did this all fall apart so quickly? Well, it honestly wasn't that sturdy to begin with. The U.S. spent the bulk of the last 20 years nation building, largely from scratch. The U.S.-backed government established a new president, a new constitution. Even democracy as a concept was relatively new. Sounds great, right? Who wouldn't want to trade the Taliban's tyranny for democracy? It sounds like a no-brainer, but like most things in the Middle East, it is not that simple. One of the popular narratives that you'll hear from Afghanistan is that the U.S. tried valiantly to bring democracy to Afghanistan, and they just weren't ready for it. But it isn't necessarily true. Sarah Shays, a reporter that covered the Taliban for NPR, pointed out that at first, the Afghan people did welcome us. They viewed us as exemplars of democracy and the rule of law, but we fell short. But we fell short. We lost credibility with the Afghan people when we propped up a new government that was ripe with corruption and treated its citizens almost as poorly as the Taliban. 
the Afghan people saw all of that happening and they saw us do nothing about it. In fact, we actually did worse than doing nothing because we rewarded it. We continued to bankroll the corrupt government. Even when we were smacked in the face with their corruption, the U.S. just turned a blind eye and the Afghan people suffered. So when the Taliban came back and they were ready to die for their cause, the Afghan people had to decide whether or not they wanted to die for a corrupt government that treated them badly. And that choice gets a lot easier to make when the government itself won't stand up to the Taliban. The president fled. The governors resigned. They handed Afghanistan over. So why would the people or the military stay and defend them if they won't defend themselves? The Taliban also had an advantage that the United States and the government that we supported could not overcome. The Taliban embody an idea so fundamental to Afghan culture that it protected them from total defeat. They embody resistance to occupation. No matter what our motivations were, no matter what we wanted to achieve, no matter how much money we invested into Afghanistan, none of that could ever overcome the fact that we were invaders. And the Afghan government was bankrolled by a foreign power. Its leaders didn't represent the localities that they lorded over. It's funny in a sad way because the Taliban is similar to America in this way. We both embody and were built around an idea. And V for Vendetta taught us that ideas are bulletproof. Because of this, the Taliban could never be totally snuffed out. Consider this. In 2015, the Afghan Institute for Strategic Studies surveyed members of the Afghan security forces and found that only 11% said that they signed up to actually fight the Taliban. Most joined for money or to serve their country, two things that they did not want to die for. Conversely, a much larger percentage of new Taliban recruits did sign up to fight the United States. So when the Taliban comes knocking, the Afghan government and security forces handed it over. They didn't want to die for something that they did not believe in. And this is the piece of Biden's argument for withdrawal that I find most compelling. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. The one thing that I will say to the Afghan security forces credit is that reporting suggests the United States trained them to fight almost exclusively with the assumption of U.S.-provided air support. Without that air support, their training was null and void. Unfortunately, all roads lead to the same place on Afghanistan. Whether you agree or not, the U.S. is pulling out. We're leaving. That's what's happening. Our withdrawal could be generously described as a fuck-up. And the epicenter of that fuck-up is the Kabul airport, where thousands of people are trying desperately to flee the country, but they can't. Many of those people are allies of the United States who fear for their lives under Taliban control. Some are women, some are children. Some of these people have visas. Some are still waiting to get them. Others are still trying to get to the airport. Getting to the airport requires somebody to travel through miles of Taliban-controlled territory in rural parts of Afghanistan, and the Taliban is much more ruthless in the rural areas. Some of these people might make it there, but many probably won't. It's a freaking horror show. And many of those people, the Afghans who put their lives in danger to help us, have been waiting for years to get their visas. It's not like they didn't apply on time. And some of that was deliberate. The Biden administration inherited a significant backlog of special visa applicants. More than 17,000, due in part to policies enacted under the Trump administration to slow down the review process 
for our allies in Afghanistan that worked to help us so thousands of them could be forsaken by the U.S. government through no fault of their own. This is the greatest sin of the whole thing, in my opinion, is that it wasn't it wasn't our decision to leave, but instead how we chose to leave and the promises that we continue to break. But don't listen to me. Listen to the people that understand it most, our veterans. This is a total failure by the United States government. It's a total failure by the commander in chief. It's a total failure, uh, really, by the American people, because this is not about the 20 year occupation of Afghanistan. It's about a humanitarian disaster that is unfolding before our eyes that is in part America's making. And I think what you're hearing from veterans is the creation of essentially an underground railroad. We have friends that are over there that are dying right now that we've served with, that we made a moral compact to. We said, we're going to have your back. If you stand up with us, America will have your back forever. And now we've yanked the rug out from under them and left them to die. It's certainly a moral injury. This is the urgency of uh, that maybe I've only felt in a combat zone. Um, I also feel like I, I will be judged. I will judge myself uh, for the actions I take. Am I doing everything in my power right now to get people out? To, to ask people, to, uh, to beg to beg Americans, call your representatives and beg to get people out. We have the capacity, they are alive right now. Get them out. Bureaucracy can wait, lives cannot. I don't really know how anybody can listen to our veterans and remain unaffected, especially when you hear them talking about how they're taking it upon themselves as individuals or in groups to get our Afghan allies out. Groups are popping up all across the country, trying everything, every method available to get our allies out because four presidents, four different administrations didn't. Our troops are acting with honor, even if our government won't. And once again, we are asking for more from the group that has already given the most. And with that, we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, we have a segment called No Stupid Questions, where I'm going to answer some listener questions about the situation in Afghanistan. Stay tuned. Hundreds of thousands of veterans have taken off their uniforms and put them away, carefully packed and safely stowed. But for some veterans, the uniform isn't so easily removed. The emotions experienced while serving continue to weigh on them. Life after service is different. Many veterans find transitioning difficult, and daily life is no longer as enjoyable as it once was. Some feel overwhelmed and lost. But that uncertainty doesn't take away from their strength and courage, nor does it take away from the sense of duty veterans carry with them. The transition from service is different for everyone. If you are a veteran going through a difficult time, or no one who is, the power of one person, one connection, one act of compassion can make a difference. For free 24-7 confidential support, call the Veterans Crisis Line at 1-800-273-8255 and press 1 or visit VeteransCrisisLine.net. And now, back to our show. All right, before we dive into No Stupid Questions, I want to thank the listeners that submitted questions. I know that it's hard to make yourself vulnerable or admit that you don't know something, so I just really appreciate you guys doing that. Um... 
And also, thank you for engaging. I love talking with you guys. I love your emails. It is one of my favorite things, so keep them coming. And if you listen to this segment and want to submit questions for future segments, you can email them in to talk at moderatepartypodcast.com or fill out the form at moderatepartypodcast.com slash questions. I guess if you wanted to, you could also send them to us on social media. All right, here we go. So Aaron from Illinois wants to know, is it true Al-Qaeda attacked our troops at the airport? What is Biden doing about that? Are we just going to let it slide? So... No, Al-Qaeda did not attack our troops at the airport. There was a terrorist attack carried out by ISIS-K, which is a separate group. And Biden thus far has been incredibly firm on this. He said that we will retaliate, that we're going to fight really hard and strike lethally, but it will not delay our evacuation. So no, we're not going to let it slide. It wasn't Al-Qaeda, it was ISIS-K. And Biden's response is, there's nowhere you can run, there's nowhere you can hide. Okay. Next question. Uh, this question is from Jackson, who I believe has actually submitted questions before in a previous episode. So if that is true, hi, Jackson. My BFF Jackson wants to know, is the Taliban the same as Al-Qaeda? Who the fuck is ISIS? And are they different than ISIS-K? Dude, what a question. All right. The Taliban is not the same as Al-Qaeda. The Taliban, think of them more like religious zealots that do actually have an interest in governing. They're kind of like Gilead for any of you Handmaid's Tale fans out there. Um, They actually have been in power in Afghanistan before. They ruled from the mid-90s to 2001. Um, And then obviously fell out of power after the U.S. invaded Afghanistan. So they're kind of on this redemption arc, right? Like, they're trying to regain the power that they feel was taken from them by the United States. Um, They are radical jihadists, but I think that... What is critically important about the Taliban is that they do have interests in being seen as legitimate rulers, whereas Al-Qaeda is a terrorist organization that isn't really interested in governing only in destruction or chaos or terrorism. They want to create a global caliphate, but at this point they have never really, like they are not a political party or like a system of government, if that makes sense. Uh, You're probably used to hearing Al-Qaeda and the Taliban used somewhat interchangeably, Because in 2001, when we said that we were going to commit to fighting the war on terror, we knew that we were going after Al-Qaeda because they were the people that perpetuated the attack on 9-11. But we were also going after the Taliban because they were harboring Al-Qaeda, which made them an enemy of the United States. If you remember the clip from earlier in the episode, George Bush says that we will make no distinction between terrorists and the people that harbor them. He's talking about the Taliban. Uh, ISIS and ISIS-K are kind of like the chaos candidate in this whole thing. ISIS-K is actually an offshoot of the original ISIS group in Iraq and Syria. Originally, it was mainly made up of ex-Taliban fighters, but today, ISIS-K are actually enemies of the Taliban. So ISIS-K recently entered the news cycle after they claimed responsibility for a major terrorist attack at the Kabul airport. We talked about that in the previous question. Um, we don't really have a grasp on the full extent of the devastation from that attack. We do know that it killed 170 Afghan citizens and 13 U.S. service members, um, making it the deadliest day for American combat troops in Afghanistan in over a decade. Experts on ISIS believe that they're attacking the U.S. as it leaves to actually undermine the Taliban. They believe that attacking the U.S. will prompt us to stay longer or to increase our military presence in the region which would make the Taliban look like they were collaborating with the West. 
um, or at least enabling our continued occupation, which is which is really a bad look for the Taliban and a great look for ISIS and ISIS-K by extension. Think about it. If ISIS-K makes it look like the Taliban can't even provide basic security, if they can't keep the U.S. out, they are incapable of ruling Afghanistan, which makes ISIS and ISIS-K seem like a viable alternative. To Biden's credit, he doesn't seem to be playing into this hand. He's been really firm about our continued evacuation, that we will not be deterred by terrorists. That said, he did make it very clear that we would strike back and we would strike back hard. And since then, we have. We've launched several strikes on ISIS-K strongholds and Biden has been very adamant that he plans for the strikes to continue. So we're just going to have to stay tuned. Okay, the next question was submitted anonymously. Is this Trump's fault or are Dems covering for Biden? Um, yes, no, maybe so, I guess. Um, yes, it is Trump's fault. I think that he bears an outsized amount of the responsibility due to the really shitty deal that he signed in February. But it is also Biden's fault, Obama's fault, Bush's fault, and everyone that works for them. You know, like, we did not get here by mistake. This has been a very deliberate 20-year process. There is no one person responsible, and that includes Trump, honestly. Dems are not covering for Biden. I feel like nobody is actually covering for Biden because the the media cycle has just been brutal. And, you know, honestly, I don't think it's entirely fair because this is being labeled as Biden's catastrophe, Biden's failure, Biden's weakness, all of that. But I just, I really don't understand why we celebrate presidents that get us into war and crucify presidents that get us out. Um, I just, I think that that's looking at it wrong. And I think that it's especially complicated with Afghanistan because it's not like Biden had a good option here, really. I mean, he could either escalate the situation or withdraw, and he chose not to commit us to another 10 years of war. And I think that the other thing that's important to note there is that the war on terror has been entirely financed on deficit spending. We're running this whole thing on credit. Past wars were financed by a war tax or an income tax, but the war on terror was started by a Republican president that did not want to raise taxes. So ironically, the fiscal hawks ran up the debt. So I think that when Biden is looking at how to best secure our interests, he also needs to take into account how we're spending our money and also where we are investing the lives of our military personnel. Whether you agree with Biden's choice or not, I think that it's pretty undeniable that he had to make a choice when there were no good choices. And I just think that the American people and the media are being really unfair about that and we're acting a little bit like children. It's a lot of finger pointing, it's a lot of punditry, and I don't like it. So the Dems are not covering for Biden, and yes, it's Trump's fault, but it's also everybody else's. Okay, next question. Are we pulling out of Iraq too? Um, maybe. So prior to the debacle in Afghanistan, we did say that we were going to be pulling our forces out of Iraq. However, based on the catastrophe that this has been, I don't necessarily see Biden getting excited to, uh, to start this all over again in Iraq. Granted, the situations there are very, very different. It is not apples to apples. I don't think that it would be as big of a catastrophe in Iraq as it is in Afghanistan. But I guess we will just have to see. I can't really answer that one directly. 
We had plans to, but I don't think that we're going to make good on those plans, at least not in the timeline that was originally indicated. The next question comes from Jeremy, who's in New Jersey. What's up, Jeremy? He says, I'm not sure if you've seen The Punisher on Netflix, but they talk... <laughs> um, I'm just going to stop there. I love The Punisher on Netflix. Uh, sorry, anyway. So I'm not sure if you've seen The Punisher on Netflix, but they talk a lot about the drug trade in Afghanistan and how big it is and how the U.S. military was essentially drug dealers. Is that true? That's a fucking awesome question, Jeremy, because I feel like that's something that is really, really getting swept under the rug in how we're covering and talking about Afghanistan because it impacts so many layers of their culture and their society. So the Punisher drug plot is actually rooted in reality. There are a lot of drugs in Afghanistan. Afghanistan grows opium poppies which are basically the root ingredient for heroin and other addictive drugs. So they grow so much that it's estimated that 80% of the world's opium supply comes from Afghanistan. Afghan heroin is 95% of the market in Europe. The bit about the US military trafficking drugs, that is not true, at least not in any way that I could find. But the impact that drugs have in Afghanistan cannot be understated. The UN Office of Drugs and Crime estimated that opium production makes up 20 to 32 percent of the country's total GDP. One interesting thing to watch for the nerds out there will be how the Taliban hands handles the drug trade in Afghanistan because they recently announced that they want to ban all drugs, which is obviously easier said than done, especially when it would be such an economic hit. So it'll be really interesting to see how that unfolds. Okay, the next question is from Carly in Nevada, home state. What's up, girl? Did we, oh, did we win the war? Okay, so I ranted a little bit earlier in the episode that I really don't like to frame the conversation about Afghanistan as something that you either win or you lose. Um, but in the spirit of answering your question, I would reference a really, really good article by Elliot Ackerman in Foreign Affairs. Elliot is a former Marine and a former CIA official. He, um, he talks about how to understand the outcome of the war, we need to be able to hold two things in our head at the same time. And those two things are victory and defeat. He argues that it is possible that we could win the war on terror, but lose the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I actually think that that is the way to think about victory and defeat. Because when it comes to the war on terror, we did decimate Al-Qaeda. And we did decimate ISIS. We could not wipe them out entirely because I think that terrorism as a concept can never be fully extinguished. But we did defeat them, largely. However, our efforts in Iraq and in Afghanistan in terms of nation-building, um counterinsurgency we were largely defeated because our efforts were ineffective so i think that did we win the war it depends which war and i think that the answer ultimately is yes and no but but it was not a clean break either way and i highly recommend that you check out that article by elliot ackerman it's called winning ugly and i've linked to it in the show notes um it's really enlightening and i think that his experience on the ground in Afghanistan is so, it's just so much more credible than anything that I could tell you here. So I highly recommend checking it out. Okay, the next question is from somebody who has asked to remain anonymous. 
Hey, Hillary, my question is about refugees. I'm seeing a lot of news and stuff about how we have to take people from Afghanistan into America. I hope this doesn't sound racist, but why? Why can't other countries take them? I feel like America always gets stuck with the bill on this shit, and I just feel like, didn't we do enough? We spent 20 years there and $2 trillion. We have so many problems in America right now. Why do we have to take the refugee thing on too? We can't take a half a million more people. Okay, so before I answer this, I do, I just, I mean, I really appreciate you being honest and making yourself vulnerable with that question. I think that, um, I don't know, I think that there are so many questions that people are afraid to ask because they're afraid of being perceived a certain way. And I'm just thankful that you asked it because we, we don't learn if we don't ask. I think that I want to start by saying that we are not taking a half a million people. We just aren't. I think you probably got that number from the UN Refugee Agency. They estimated that a half a million people were displaced inside Afghanistan since January. So that number has been floating around. It just isn't the number that the U.S. have committed to taking. Um, the total number of Afghan refugees trying to leave is unknown right now. And the U.S. has agreed to welcome, I think it's 10,000 refugees, former allies to the United States. So people that have helped us, contractors, interpreters, um, drivers, people that put their life in danger to help us. Um, but to put that into perspective, neighboring countries are taking as many as 100,000 each. Canada's taking 20,000. So we aren't even in the top three. Um, the countries taking the most refugees are, by and large, neighboring Middle Eastern countries. And the U.S. wasn't taking... Um, we don't technically have to take anyone, but I do think that there's a moral obligation to take care of the people that risk their lives to help us, especially when we promised them that we would. Uh, my sweet friend Samantha from Wisconsin wrote, I do want to know about humanitarian non-military organizations in Afghanistan. Will they receive any future protection or support from the U.S. government if they choose to stay? Also, how do they decide where the refugees go? Okay, so it really depends who they are. Um, okay, so let's start with the humanitarian non-military organizations. It really depends on who they are. If they're U.S. citizens, they will, um, if they're U.S. citizens, we're trying to evacuate them. And to some degree, they will always carry the protection that comes with our flag, uh, meaning that if the Taliban harmed U.S. citizens, that will always make it to the desk of high-ranking U.S. officials, and we will almost always try to do something about it. That said, I do feel a little bit frustrated with, um, people that would stay in Afghanistan. I do get a little bit frustrated with people that would stay in Afghanistan after we have done all but beg them to leave. If they are U.S. citizens that already have a passport, it feels like a slap in the face to the thousands of Afghan allies that are waiting, trying to get a visa to get out so desperately because they fear for their lives. Um, but they can't because of backlog and bureaucratic bullshit. So to actually have the credentials to leave and not use them, I mean, it just, it feels like a slap in the face. And I think that it would be one thing if it's like, okay, I'm going to stay here forever. This is my home now. This is fine. But I think that what often happens is that they want to stay there until things get bad for them personally. And then they want the U.S. government to exert every resource at its disposal to get them home safely. It's, um, I listened to Sarah Isger on the Dispatch podcast compare it to, um, 
us having to helicopter out a hiker that decided to hike in an unfamiliar area in like flip-flops and a t-shirt with no water, no food or anything. We have to spend thousands of dollars trying to get them out because they put themselves in a dangerous situation. I know that that sounds harsh as hell and I hope that you guys know that I don't come to that lightly, but I just think that you do have to take personal responsibility for your safety in a lot of these situations. Um, Yeah, so I mean, okay, so the second part of your question is how do we decide where the refugees go? They basically go to wherever they have a connection. So like if you have family in a neighboring country, you can apply there. Um, If you've done work with the U.S. government, for example, you can apply for the special visa or you can apply for a special visa. Um, And then there are just some countries that are a little bit more lax with their refugee policies, like Canada is is pretty open minded, Um, you know, or even if you're. Women and children are also getting expedited visas uh, from a lot of countries, what, regardless of whether or not they have a tie. So that one really is a case-by-case basis. All right, so that is the last question that we have today. As always, I really appreciate you guys listening to the show. Um, if you like, please subscribe. Uh, leave us a five-star review as always. And, you know, just share it with somebody. Like, if you think that the conversation we're having is one that more people should have, the easiest way to make sure that that happens is by sharing the show. I appreciate you spending a little bit of your time with me. There are a lot of things making the climate pretty dangerous out there, so please, please, please stay safe. Wear a mask, get vaccinated, the whole nine yards. Take care, guys. I'll see you next week.